Recovery Elevator, episode 207. It's always amazing to me how there's so many similarities, but there's also, there's so many differences. It seems like every person has a unique path through this stuff. You know, I mean, there's a lot of commonalities we have. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Tom, who considered himself a high-functioning alcoholic. Tom's been sober since June 4th, 2018. He's from Seattle, Washington, and he's 50 years old. Events. I am excited about the upcoming events for Recovery Elevator. As I've already mentioned on the podcast, we've got Nashville, February 23rd, Saturday night at 7 p.m., Recovery Elevator live in Nashville downtown. We've got Bozeman, the Recovery Elevator Bozeman Retreat, August 14th to the 18th. This was a huge hit in 2017. We went to Peru last year and it is back on the calendar this year. And it is going to be a blast. And guys, what I am particularly excited about these days is sober travel. And Recovery Elevator, we're putting together these sober travel itineraries. And the next one we are doing is an Asia trip in late January 2020. This is a 12 day trip. We're going to be flying into Bangkok, Thailand, and then make our way over to Cambodia, where the departure will be from Siem Reap. Apart from having a blast with other like-minded individuals, checking out new cultures, new food, and just traveling in Asia, we will be doing service projects, one of them possibly at an elephant reserve, and there's going to be several recovery workshops built in this trip. You can find more information for all these events at recoveryelevator.com forward slash events. Okay, let's get started. I've got a quick intro today, followed by some fantastic You Might Be an Alcoholic gift lines after the interview with Tom. Okay, we've all heard of FOMO, or the fear of missing out. Thank you, Mark Z and social media for creating this four-letter acronym that represents where we should be in life and not where we currently are. Side note, time will tell, and this is all speculative, but Zuckerberg may go down in history not as the guy who created Facebook and helped everyone keep in touch, those were air quotes, but as the guy who disconnected society and propelled addiction even further. I hope I'm wrong on this. Okay, back on topic. FOMO is dangerous because it rips us away from the present moment, and that's a big theme on the Recovery Elevator podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about JOMO, or the joy of missing out. I came across this when someone sent me a link to a podcast from Christina Crook, who has a book called The Joy of Missing Out. JOMO, the joy of missing out, isn't some Jedi mind trick. It's a real thing. At first, it may seem like you're forcing yourself into a new mindset, and you're actually missing out. But within time, you'll enjoy avoiding those drunken events. Jomo isn't necessarily a tool in a recovery toolkit, but more of a no thanks, I think I'll sit this drunken bachelor party out and go camping with some friends. Let me give you an example of Jomo. I was speaking with a friend of mine trying to figure out plans for this past New Year's Eve. He said, well, we could always go downtown. My response was reactionary. God no, I didn't even have to think about it. Not because I was worried about being in a risky environment where there would be plenty of drinks, etc., but because I don't want anything to do with ringing in the new year at a packed bar or club. I don't want drinks spilled on me. I don't want to wait 15 minutes in line to get a soda water, ginger beer, sugar-free Red Bull, whatever. And I don't want to have surface-level conversations over loud music. I could feel the bile start to make an appearance in my mouth. No. F*** no, I don't want to go to the bars and clubs downtown for New Year's. There was so much joy in making this decision. And at the New Year's party that I did attend, where I was ice skating until 12.30 in the morning, an incredible evening, 
I kept thinking back and saying, thank God I'm not downtown. There was a lot of joy in that. And again, this Jomo isn't out of fear of relapse, but a clear sentiment of me wanting to avoid that energy. The joy of missing out is the emotionally intelligent antidote to FOMO and is essentially about being present and being content where you are at this moment in life. You don't need to compare your life to others, but instead practice tuning out the background noise of the shoulds and the wants and learn to let go of worrying whether you're doing something wrong. JOMO allows us to live in the slow lane, to appreciate human connections, there's that word again, to be intentional with our time, to practice saying no, to give ourselves tech-free breaks, and to give ourselves permission to acknowledge where we are and feel emotions, whether they are positive or negative. Instead of constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses, JOMO allows us to be who we are in the present moment, which is the secret to finding happiness. One cool thing about JOMO, or me making the decision of I'm going to sit this one out, is I've experienced the whole I'm in the right place at the right time thing again. When my addiction was in fifth gear, I was never in the right place at the right time. I was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. You might be an alcoholic if, when you quit drinking, you finally find yourself in the right place at the right time. So after the interview with Tom, I've got a bunch of great You Might Be an Alcoholic If lines. Most of them are from Tom, so stick around. And before we hear from Tom, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Tom, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Paul? Tom, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And let's get right into this. Tom, how long have you been sober? Uh, about seven months now. I uh, quit drinking on uh, June 4th of this year, 2018. Yeah, congratulations. How's it feel? Oh, it feels amazing. I'm, I've been shocked at the at the changes and, you know, how different my life is now than it was, you know, certainly a year ago. Yeah, and listeners, before I hit record, Tom mentioned that he was surprised how long he waited to get sober, and it wasn't quite the challenge he thought it was going to be. And I'm excited to hear more about his story and share it with you guys. But before we get any further, Tom, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, most importantly? I'm uh, from Seattle. I'm 50 years old. Uh, I've been married for 23 years, and I have an amazing 16-year-old daughter and a 19-year-old son, and a, a pug, a Violet, named 14. There you go. They're all amazing, and, they're, and I'm so grateful to have them uh, have them in my life. I work in the in the high tech field. I mean, that's the reason I came here to Seattle. We have a I work for a company. We have a cloud computing service. It's been really successful, and you know, over the years, I've done a lot of I've done a lot of interesting stuff here in Seattle. 
I'm originally from Pennsylvania, really super small town of about 200 people. And for fun, first, I, I kind of want to say a little thing about for fun. Cause I used to listen to your podcast before I got sober, and I always loved your you know, be an alcoholic if. <laughs> That's right. And I remember thinking, because you always ask this question, and I remember the first time I listened to the podcast, I thought, you know, how would I answer that question? And I thought, I really had a hard time, you know, because I think... You know, you 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 might you know you might be an alcoholic if you if you don't know what you do for fun because you're doing a lot of drinking is what you're mainly doing. That's so. a great one. So anyway, that's there a, are so many of them. But, uh, and uh, tell oh, listeners yeah. why you like that you might be an alcoholic if line. I think I you know I like it for a lot of reasons. I kind of have a dark sense of humor, right? And they're kind of like, and I love things that are you know. There's an element of truth to those that makes them funny, but. I think the reason they're funny, uh, they, I, you know, they're probably not funny to somebody who's in an, being an act, active alcoholic, right? But I think, like, afterwards, like, right now, like, I feel so confident in not drinking, right, that it's, you know, I feel safe, right? Because, I, I mean, I, I go to AA and I have other support mechanisms. I have people I can call. I listen to podcasts. And so, you know, they're funny because I feel safe, right? And I can I can joke about that stuff, you know. At least that's what I feel. But I think that's why that's why they're funny to me. <laughs> and Tom, let me let me tell you why I, I like it. Number one, I think we need to bring humor into every aspect of our life. And number two, sometimes when the message is so hard to penetrate the brain, even for the person going through it, for everybody who struggles with addiction, um, it's just another creative way. I think humor can also deliver a message in a different way. But you're right; it's they're not all funny. And there might be like, oh, too soon. Yeah, some of them are too soon. It, it, it took me a while to get away from my addiction before I was like, okay, you know, I can I can kind of laugh about this stuff because there there yeah. has to be humor, there has to be smiles yeah. on this journey. And absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, when I first did it, I'm like, I, I, I got to be careful about this. I want to tread lightly, but um, I, I think humor is pretty important. And, and there have been some damn good. You might be alcoholic if lines, and I'm excited to hear some of yours at the end of this. And and Tom, give listeners. Background about your drinking. Perhaps describe your drinking habits, how much you drank, did you ever attempt to regulate, when did you start, and when did this become problematic for you? You're 50 years old, so when you're giving us your your story, your, your journey, try to give us times, ages, so we can we can follow it linearly with your life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I like I said, I've been seven months uh, sober now, and, you know, that's the longest that I hadn't had a drink in, in 35 years. Nice job, um, Tom. Seriously, nice job. You know, and it, it's kind of shocking. And I, you know, I, I, I have a lot of friends in the program, and you know, you know, so I've heard a lot of stories and and how different people have dealt with this. And it's always amazing to me how there's so many similarities, but there's also there's so many differences. It seems like every person has a unique path through this stuff. You know, I mean, there's a lot of commonalities we have. But so for mine, you know, it, it's I don't know. I kind of to me it seems atypical because you know, for my probably the first. 15 years, certainly the first 10, 10 years, 10 to 15 years, you know, when I, you know, I've had my first drink when I was 14 and, and I distinctly remember not liking it. Right. But, you know, my friends drank. And so I kind of just kept doing it mainly for camaraderie and I guess social pressure. And I drank in high school. I came from a very small rural area and we would have bonfires and, you know, there was, there wasn't really a whole lot to do in, in those areas. And, and, you know, drinking is almost like a sport in that, in that area. Like, I mean, people really drink a lot. And so, but, you know, through all that, I, I got to say, Paul, I, I think the first 10 to 15 years, I was, I was pretty much a regular drinker. It was never, it was never really a problem for me. I could kind of take it or leave it. It didn't really, 
negatively impact my life. I mean, I did binge drinking and, and stuff in college, but you know, kind of everybody did. I didn't, I really didn't, I really didn't see my, what I was doing is much different than other folks. I saw a shift uh, when I started working and even in, even in college to some degree, I always had this, this mentality where, you know, if I had work to do, you know, like a big test, I went to a, a big, engineering school. I mean, it was a rigorous school, but it's, you know, it's also a, a major party school. But, you know, when I had stuff to do, I, that's what I did, right? I mean, I was like a straight A student and, you know, but when I would finish, you know, I would let off some steam occasionally. And, and I don't know exactly the mechanism of this that, that happened, but when I started working, I kind of brought that into my, into my working life, you know, where I, I was using alcohol as like, relaxation almost yeah, like a reward release. right a release yeah and you know this stuff happened so slowly I, I wasn't really kind of keenly aware of it you know i mean there are definitely some red letter dates of places where i look back now and i'm like wow you know my drinking really changed around this time you know but you know really for the last 20 years you know, i've been you know i was drinking daily you know and and a lot and but i always had this I don't know how I, I don't know exactly how to describe it. I was I was I, I guess I'd consider myself a highly functional alcoholic. I mean, I was drinking every day and I would get drunk, but I wouldn't get so drunk that I couldn't get up the next day and fulfill all my responsibilities. And I've always been super valued at work and done an amazing job. And so I I kind of got into this mode where that became my normal daily existence, right? Where I was, you know, I'd the typical thing I would get up in the morning and I'd be like, Oh, you know what? I had a little too much to drink. And then, you know, I'd feel better by around nine thirty, ten 10 o'clock. And then I'd be drinking again at, you know, five or six that night mm -hmm. and just do the, do the whole thing. Um, over and over. all over again. And, you know, and I, and I, I gotta say, I mean, for most of that 20 years, I had no, I had no interest in quitting. You know, I mean, I, I really, I really thought of alcohol as part of the, part of my success, right? I mean, I, I honestly attributed it to, you know, this is why I'm doing so well. Like I said, I, I, I've had an amazing career. I had directorship, top management positions. I started two companies, created some awesome technology. You know, some of those companies are still around today. Wow. And, and I, I did not think I had a problem at all. In fact, I, I really, you know, I thought I was living the life, you know, <laughs> I, was in to I was really in, in total denial. And, you know, one of the things that, that really over the course of that time that really bothers me, and I, and I think this is, this is pretty common, at least I have a few friends that I've met that were like, because, it, you know, if you're, if you've really gone over the edge and, you know, I, I, I never had a DUI, I never, you know, uh, got in a fight, lost a job, I've had good relationships, I never got divorced, I've never, you know, I never, like, you know, backed over my dog in my pickup truck, you know, I, I just don't have any good you know, these dark stories that so many people that I, that I've met have. So from the outside, you know, no one would have thought that I was an alcoholic because, you know, I would, I, I was hiding it. I was hiding it from my wife, my family, my friends. I would, you know, I'd have a drink or two with dinner more when I was going out with colleagues at work, but that was it, you know? And then the reason I did that is because I knew, you know, tonight, you know, after everyone's gone to bed, I can have as much as I want. Right. And that's, that's kind of what, that's kind of what I did for years. And, you know, for me, like when I look back on it now, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a little emotional right now because I just feel like I lied to everybody for so long. 
you know, like I lied to myself too, but, but there were moments when, you know, like, you know, it's a grind, it's a grind doing that level of drinking. I mean, you just have just getting rid of the recycling, you know, like I had bottles hidden all over the place and it would, it would get to the point where, you know, like, wow, you know, I don't really have any areas where I can put more without my family finding this stuff. So I would wait until everyone went to school and went to work. And then I would just do this mass cleaning where I got rid of all the, the bottles. Tom, yeah, Leaner Jack, you, uh, you mentioned it's a grind and cleaning up after that wreckage, like with the recycling and hiding it for people for so long is absolutely exhausting. I know a lot of listeners, including myself, can relate to that. And then you mentioned externally, you, with the companies you built, all the success you had professionally, externally, Tom, you're, you're kicking major butt and there's no way you can be an alcoholic, but internally, you knew something was off. And so with your sobriety date 6.5 months ago, or a little over seven months ago, um, you know, when did you know, was what was it your mid, mid, mid forties? When did you know that something was not right with your drinking? That started about two years ago. I had this problem because, you know, I would go to the doctor. I lied to the doctor too, right? I mean, he would ask me, um, so, so I went to the doctor. I had this you might problem. You might be an alcoholic if. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely you true. Pay, you pay money for a doctor, a therapist, psychiatrist, and don't tell them the truth. Exactly. Yeah. Or and actively deceive them. And, but, you know, I had this, this problem where I would wake up, um, usually after I had had a lot to drink, uh, you know, where I pushed it a little too far. And, and the, I had three fingers on my left hand that would be numb. You know, in the beginning, it was very slight, but it got, it got to be kind of pronounced, right? And it would last for days, right? And then the feeling would come back. And I thought, oh, you know, I better get this checked out. You know, so I, I went to the doctor and, you know, it's funny because even at that, I had no idea, hey, this might be related to drinking. You know, I, I, I went to the doctor and he's going through, they did all these tests, asking all these questions. And finally he goes, well, you know, what's your drinking like, you know? And, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I did the stand. Oh, you know, I'll have a glass or two with, with dinner, you know, and it, it, you know, and I just lied to him. And, it, and, and, you know, and I, that's true. I would have a glass or two with dinner, but then I'd have, you know, four to 12 more later on. And so, you know, but I'm not stupid, right? I kind of thought, wow, you know what? This must be my, this must be my drinking. And then I, you know, it's, it's weird. You know, you, I, I kind of went back and like, okay, I know what it is now. I'll try to stop my drinking. I went through another one of those loops, you know, two, three days. You're feeling better. So... I started drinking again. And I mean, honestly, after a while, I, I just decided, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Then, uh, you know, I had a, a major stress in my life about a year ago, Paul. And the nature, the nature of my drinking really changed. I, I, I think I mentioned before we started my, um, my son had gone off to college, right? In, in August of last year. And, you know, he's great high school experience. You know, he's a, um, an athlete and you know we really had a good relationship and you know it's exciting it's our first child going off to school and I was um super excited and and he went went to went to school and you know almost immediately he started having problems with with drugs and alcohol that really quickly escalated and and for him it was most it was mostly drugs right mm -hmm. alcohol was not his thing at all and the way that I dealt with that because I mean I I don't know I'm I'm assuming I had no previous experience with really addiction or you know i didn't have anyone in my family i didn't really know anybody and 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 my wife and i my family oh man we went through hell with that i mean i don't i don't know if you have any close friends or members of your family but you know like 
the constant emergencies and begging for money and just it's insanity of of that. And you know the way the way I dealt with that was you know I always felt like I drank for relaxation, right? And mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I was drinking. I was drinking just kind of disappear, right? I I just wanted to, to check out, you know. I wanted to forget about all that. And Tom, yeah, let while. me make a comment on how you said the dynamic of your drinking changed when you faced the stressor in your life, which was when your son went out to college, he, he became involved with uh, more hard drugs, shall we say. Um, I, I think it, it proved the functionality of what alcohol was playing in your life all along. I think it just became more prevalent. As in, it was it was a device. It wasn't something to relax. It was something to to soothe the pain and, and to kind of check out. And that, and, and that really sped along the process. It sounds like when your son went to college, is that what I'm hearing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, one of the things that I, that always marked my drinking is my progression. It seems so glacial, you know, like, I mean, literally I went from drinking a glass or two, literally. I mean, I can remember when my wife and I first got married, we'd have a a bottle of wine for like, I don't know, a week in the house. right? <laughs> and then, uh, you know, which is just, insane to be now to even think about that but we you know it went from a glass to two to three for you know it was half a bottle and then i mean but this took years right and then it was a bottle and then a bottle and a half and then you know two bottles and then yep. sometimes three <laughs> bottles and and this is after i've gone out to dinner and had two three martinis you know i, I mean you know there were there were kind of elements of that but it was not it was not every day you know and, and like i said I, I was i used to be functional i kind of worked drinking into my life but you know that with this i was drinking so much that I, I was just getting too drunk too often and i was not functional right i could see things kind of falling apart you know i was calling in sick i was kind of dropping the ball my family responsibilities my work responsibilities like it was very clear to me that this this is not a good path and, and uh and you know i distinctly remember it was a, mo- a monday i woke up on uh, woke up on a Monday and it's kind of funny because I always look back on that I, in life. I kind of like this sounds kind of philosophical and I always remember it's funny to me. I think about the last thing, like, you know, like my last drink, when I had my last drink, I did not know it was my last drink. Right. In fact, I had given up on my last drink right a while ago. I just didn't think, <laughs> didn't think I was, was going to quit. And, uh, and I got up and it was weird. You know, it was one of those weekends I'd had way too much. Like I said, it was a Monday. The house was super quiet. Everyone had gone, right? I I had basically slept, overslept. Wife's at work, daughter's at school. And I wake up and it's just super quiet in the house. And for whatever reason, I just, I was super relaxed. And I remember thinking, because, you know, my fingers were numb on my left hand and my stomach really hurt. And I was hung over. And I, and I thought, I thought to myself, and I thought this before, but I really believed it. I thought, you know what, Tom, this, this is how you're going to die. Like this is going to kill you, and I and I truly I truly believed it, you know, and I in the way that I hadn't before, and I, I thought, you know, it might be two years, five years, ten years, I don't know how long, but I absolutely understood at that moment that I was going to die from drinking, and I never, I, you know, I didn't drink, I didn't drink after that, I haven't, I haven't had a drink since that day, and but you know, I can't explain why that happened then and not any time before that because you know i i don't know some crazy stuff had happened in the course of that last year you know it was really uh, it was really not a not a good time for me tom earlier in the podcast episode you mentioned that everybody's story is different yet there are so much similarities and what i've heard consistently while doing this podcast with the interviewees is is that there comes a moment of clarity 
when consciously we can evaluate our drinking habits, what it's actually doing in our life. And it sounds like with your three left fingers being numb, your stomach hurt, you were physically seeing the symptoms that, yeah, this will eventually kill you, whether it's two, five years, whatever down the road, the writing was on the wall. And I love what you just said. You had kind of given up on your last drink. You had kind of given up on the idea of quitting drinking. And you had this moment of clarity where you were able to see that, okay, this is not serving me. And you move forward without it. And how was that first week? How was that decision process? Yeah, walk us through that first first early part of sobriety because that's difficult. Your body is coming off alcohol. It's an addictive drug. But also, you're launching into a full new person. And this is probably the most difficult part about getting sober is there's a Tom of old and there's a Tom of new. Tell us more about that whole process for you. Yeah, that's definitely true. I was I was really shocked, you know. So the first three days, and, you know, honestly, I don't know if I... I, I was really sick for the first three days. I mean, I, I basically called in work, took vacation because I was, I couldn't get out of bed, Paul. And I, and wow. honestly, I don't know if I, I don't know if I was actually sick or if that was physical addiction working its way out. I kind of look back on it now. And I honestly, I honestly don't know. Cause I had quit. I tried to quit for two or three days before in the past, but not for quite a while. So I, I honestly don't know, but I, I do know that it was not easy. Those first, those first few days, but you know, a- after that, you know, it was probably on the fourth or fifth day. And, you know, I really, I just started to feel a lot better physically. Like, you know, like I, I, I was, you know, it took, it obviously took a lot longer before I really started to feel good. I mean, now, like, I can't even believe it. Like, I feel like Superman, like, it's like compared to, you know, it, it, it's amazing, but, but it definitely was not, was not easy that first, you know, four or five days. And then, you know, the second week I was actually I was feeling a lot better. I was, I mean, almost immediately, it's crazy, but um, I was sleeping better. I was having, you know, drinking dreams and stuff like that, which scared the hell out of me. <laughs> because literally, you wake up from this nightmare, I'm going to call it, and I think, oh my God, I just drank, you know, and I'm, I'm looking around, frantically looking around for the bottle, right? I mean, I was really, like, I could not believe how, you know, like, whatever, we have 4K television, this is like, 20k alcohol porn right where I, I mean like i could smell it and see it like i can vividly remember like I, I was shocked that i could i could have dreams that were so detailed and felt like so real like and, that. And tom here's where these drinking dreams get interesting i've met several people this has not happened to me i've had relapse dreams which are the absolute worst nightmares but i've had i've met people where those dreams will actually manifest the physical symptoms as in they'll wake up and have a hangover <laughs> like that's how oh, powerful, wow. yeah, wow. that's how powerful the mind is and how powerful those dreams are. Um, yeah, I've had, I've had people wake up and hang over for half a day and they didn't drink anything the night before. It's just, it's just wild of how powerful the brain is. And, and so did you have any cravings in early recovery? You mentioned that it wasn't as difficult as you thought it was going to be. It didn't really sound like this was even, even in the cards at this time of your life to get sober. Yeah, I one of the reasons I've been really successful in business is like, I really play to win. Right. So I, I mean, I approach things like failure is not an option. Damn the torpedoes. Like, you know, I don't, I don't care about my, my physical, whatever, not pain, but dedication. Like I'm willing, I'm willing to, to, to work hard. And so I really, I, I, I became like a sobriety savage. You know, I, you know, I was educating myself. Uh, it was almost, in a lot of ways, though, Paul, it was like playing chess, right? Because, you know, my wife and I, we'd regularly have, we'd stop for cocktails and stuff like that. And I knew right right away, because I had a conversation with her. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this, so I can't be doing that, you know? And so so I, I kind of cha- mentally changed my whole routine, right? Like, I would not go to the grocery store, you know, where, 
you know, I would go to different stores, so I wasn't familiar with where the the alcohol aisle was. I would, I would, you know, I wouldn't go anywhere near accepting offers to go out and have a drink at work, right? We, my company, it's a super young company, all kinds of drinking functions all the time. They roll kegs out and we have all kinds of fun stuff. Stayed away from that, you know, because I, I knew that, you know, I, I was playing a mental game and it, honestly, it was pretty draining, right? To, to try to think ahead like this. <laughs> but I knew that I wasn't taking any chances, Paul. I, I, my, I thought, okay, if I don't buy alcohol and I don't go near alcohol, I'm not going to drink alcohol. And my initial goal was that was it. I'm just not, I am not, I don't care what, going to consume any alcohol. And so, you know, that's kind of how I approached it initially. And, I, you know, it's funny. I, can I, I remember the first time I went to AA, I, I, was, I, was, I was not doing well, Paul, <laughs> to be honest with you. It was, about, it was about two weeks. And, you know, my son uh, during this time, you know, he was, he was in recovery, right? He did 28-day detox and he got it. I thank God. I'm so grateful that he came back to us and was in foundational living. And, and you know, so I would talk to him and meet him on weekends. You know, he was in a place where he couldn't come and go, but I would go see him. And he knew about my drinking. He didn't know where all the bodies were buried and really, I think, the depth of the issue. But, you know, he, you know, he lived with me. He knew that I drank a lot and he knew it wasn't normal. And so he had suggested once, you know, maybe you should go to AA, you know? And I kind of thought, hey, what, you know, what the hell are you talking about? I'm not like... I'm not an alcoholic. Like, you know, I have a great job and I have all these, all this stuff. And my, my life is like in order, you know, and I, and I kind of, I've heard you talk about it too. Right. And I, and I, and I, I'm going to say, I love AA, but you know, I think a lot more people could get a lot more help if they didn't have to face that and say, I'm an alcoholic because it has so much negativity. Agreed. I have podcasted Uh, several times on this topic. I think, it's a fantastic program, but I think the the second word in the title of the program is is prohibiting it from really helping a, a, a lot more people. That's the uh, number one, both of them, alcoholic and anonymous. <laughs> people don't like the word alcoholic. Yeah. They don't. And number two, I don't believe we should be anonymous with this, with with mental health in general. If we if we don't talk about it, there's, hey, there's nothing to be ashamed about. Um, if we don't talk about it, really, no progress or no change is ever going to take place. Um, and there's one other thing I want to, I, I want to comment on you earlier, you mentioned high functioning alcoholic and we, we, we lump and I, I did this myself when I went to my first AA meeting, I was like, wow, I haven't had all, I haven't had all, all this wreckage like you mentioned earlier, but the more I do these podcast interviews, a high functioning alcoholic, I think is the alcoholic and studies show that only 5% of people fit the stigma. When we hear the word alcoholic, we think brown bag living underneath a freeway underpass, homeless, really only 5% of people who struggle with alcohol reach that point. And so oftentimes we, we say, I can't be an alcoholic because I have a high, a high paying job or I'm, I'm, I'm professional. I got a family, I'm married, I have a car, I have a house. I can't be an alcoholic. Well, I'm actually coming to the conclusion. Well, actually reached probably episode 150 of like, wow, I need to reshape my vision or, or, or my picture of what an alcoholic is. And, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, no, I, I, I totally agree. In fact, I, you know, it's seven months. I, I'm kind of struggling with that now uh, in a lot of ways, the, the, at least the way I think about it. And the, and the reason I mention that is, you know, I go to I go to AA at least once a week. Um, and, and sometimes when I need to go, like last night, you know, this is my first Christmas and New Year's without drinking, right? So mm-hmm. I went because, not because I felt like I needed to drink, but I don't know. I kind of, I thought, you know what? Like there could be people there like me, now, you know, 
I guess, you know, I need it. Maybe I can help somebody, you know, like it felt like the right thing for me to do. And so that, that that's what I did. But, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But, you know, here in Seattle, like, you know, the group I go to, it's in, in Lake City Way. And, you know, there are a lot of people there. Typical meeting. There's, there's anywhere from, I don't know, 50, 60 people. There'll be maybe a hundred people. Wow. And, and it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big group. And it kind of ebbs and flows, right? Like on the, on the birthday meeting where they give out the chips, you know, it's a packed house. But a lot of the people that go there, you know, it struck me as AA. Like, I don't know exactly what, how, how as a society we, we are going to deal with addiction, but there definitely are a lot of people there that are in that primary category where they were homeless. You know, they hit bottom and bounce like a basketball, man. And, and they're, you know, and my heart just bleeds for those guys, right? Because they're in a world of hell that I, you know, I didn't, it wasn't easy, but I didn't face that, right? I mean, I had food, I had shelter, I had people who, who loved me, right? And and so, and, and so I think AA, like if you're, if you've hit bottom in a way that, you know, you just, I, I never really lost my, I've always been kind of spiritual, like, and even though I, I, I'd given up hope, I, you know, my spark was not out, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It was there. And, and a lot of, a lot of those folks are, you know, it, I think AA full, full force, do everything, do what you're told, get a sponsor absolutely works for so many people. But, you know, AA in a lot of ways, they kind of ask you to give your life over, certainly to, to get through the program and maybe forever. And, and, you know, I, I read like, you know, um, Annie Grace's uh, uh, podcast and let, or listen to her podcast. I've read her books and I kind of feel like, for me, I, I love AA. I love what it's done for me. Don't get me wrong. I think it is absolutely amazing. It's so inspiring seeing people rebuild their lives and face face this stuff. But I don't I don't know if I need to do AA for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? And I don't know if I need. I certainly don't want to think of myself as an alcoholic for the rest of my life. Even though I know that I I'm never going to drink anymore. I have no desire to drink anymore. I don't want to. I, I somehow feel if if a lot if you know it, it's kind of a it's a marketing problem. I think if you really want people to get help with their, their drinking, we need to tone down some of the elements that AA is kind of all about. I, I feel, I think it's, it's really great. I think it's, for me, it's, I'm so thankful. It's the best resource that totally saved me. I can tell you, I, I would still be drinking right now if it weren't for AA, but you know, I think there's a lot of optic problems that prevent it from helping a lot more people. But, that's sort of what I'd say. Yeah, a couple comments on that. Some of the stories, like you mentioned, the bottoms are real bottoms. All bottoms are real. Some just emotional pain. It's all relative, right? It's all the same amount of pain. But some of those, some of the stories in AA are so inspiring. And I, I recall saying to myself when I was really struggling with it, say, look, if this guy can do it, I can do it. If this program works for him, I can do it. Another thing you mentioned earlier that I want to comment on is you said in AA, you feel like you kind of have to turn your life over, which I agree with. I feel like in sobriety, if you want to get sober and stay sober, if you go to AA or not, you still have to give your life over. I'm not going to fill in the blank there to say to God or to a higher power, but you kind of got to reach a conclusion to say, okay, my ideas for the last umpteen years have not worked. I need to turn my life over to something else, to a new direction. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a drastic change needs to be, it needs to happen internally, externally, regardless of what program you go through. Um, and and just a couple, just a couple questions before we hit the rapid fire round, Tom, what have you learned most about yourself in these, uh, in these past seven months? You know, that's, that's a really good question. I think the thing, one of the things that immediately jumped into my, my head when you asked that is, you know, I, you're never, you're never too far gone. You know, I mean, I, I drank 
a lot for a very long time. And I was not sure, you know, most of the time I didn't think I had a problem. And then when I realized I did, I thought, how in the hell am I going to quit? And, you know, I was kind of desperate about that. You know, you're never too far gone. You know, I think like you said, if you turn yourself over, I had like a, I don't know if we have time or not, Paul. I wanted to tell you about a huge thing that totally changed my life. In a of course way you do. Deep and, and, and moving that, that really, you know, because as I said, I was sober, but I wasn't doing that well. Right? I was, I was like, it was a constant strain. I went to AA. That really helped me a lot. I mean, I, the first time I went there, I sat down and like, you know, I, I got strength from other, being around these people. I'm like, oh my God, I understand. These people understand me. I understand them. I look around during these stories and you see the love and compassion in people's eyes. Like it really, it really got me through the first two months. But even at two months, you know, I, I had this moldering, I don't know, desire. I was, I was still playing chess in order to, in order to get through without drinking. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't relaxed. I was not relaxed. And I knew I was worried about myself. Right. I mean, I, I knew I wasn't going to drink, but I was doing it through will and I was leaning on AA and, you know, and also nature. Like I spent a lot of time hiking and doing physical stuff and being outside. But I knew in my heart of hearts that, you know, like this, you, you've talked about it many times, this little guy in my, you know, who sounds like me, but isn't necessarily mm -hmm. me. My, my subconscious was not completely buying into it, you know, and I, and I, I, I this is before I read um, Andy's book and heard other people talk about it. And I didn't, I, somehow I, I kind of understood that, you know, initially that guy was kind of my enemy. Right. And and then I sort of, I just kind of kept telling him every morning I'd tell this guy, I love you, man. I love you, but we've got to change, you know? And, and somehow like that acceptance kind of made it a little better for me, but, but in two months on August 6th, I had a, a rock, a rock, a life rocking spiritual experience that completely changed me. Yeah, Paul. I, I, you know, I, I just, you know, I know you talk about this kind of thing and people, people think you're crazy. I, I just recently listened to your 170 episode just like two days ago, three days ago. And, and thank you for that, you know, because I, I feel like you talk about this kind of stuff, like it's people's brains just kind of shut and you can I, I felt very i felt kind of alone and you know i'm a guy of science like don't don't get me wrong like I, i'm a huge doubter of things like i i like i'm very spiritual but i'm not at all religious right and <laughs> and i need to see feel and touch stuff right and 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 measure things as and, most you know, of us do how yes how i am and so i'm not i'm not like the kind of person who goes around telling these kind of stories but anyway on august 6th i had this emergency surgery to remove a large section of my small intestine that had died it had wow. wrapped wrapped around itself it was about a foot long section and and i i suffered tremendously tremendously and my wife found me like in a pool of sweat i in in the catatonic state you know at like 5 a.m I'd, I'd been up all night i couldn't sleep and you know rushed me called the doctor they said you need to get the emergency room so we went to the emergency room and this amount of pain is something that i can't even describe and i've been through some stuff terrible stuff and i wouldn't have thought it was even possible to, to feel this level of pain and um and it, it got so bad because i got to the hospital and they were doing tests and you know it's funny we think we're in this modern state of medicine and you know i was shocked they're running all these tests they could not figure out 
what was wrong with me. So for four or five hours, and they had me on heavy drugs. They were giving me fentanyl like every 25 minutes. And I was in such a level of pain that my I could feel my sanity unraveling. Like, wow. I, I, could, I could literally, I, I was wishing, wishing for death, honestly. I, I thought, you know what? This is so horrific. I think I'd be better off you know, not living, you know, and then, you know, I'm listening to the doctors and they can't figure out what's wrong and my vitals are starting to, to go. And they're like, you know what, we've got like two or three things. We don't know what it is. We're going to have to go in and figure this out like on the fly. Right. So they're saying, you know, it's telling my wife this and I can understand things, but I, I, I couldn't even really communicate very well uh, at that point. And I had given up like in my mind, Paul, I thought this is it, you know, and uh, you know, I'm going to die. And I, and I literally, and I was saying goodbye to people, right? And I was like thinking, God, I wish I hadn't wasted, you know, my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s, like drinking, right? And I, and I was just, you know, I consigned myself to thinking this is it. And then it, it's, it's weird. And this is, this is the part that is a little freaky. It was almost like someone had snapped their fingers and this blue light just, bam, just, it just took me out of that room because I was so, I couldn't breathe. I was in horrific pain. And like instantly, I was like on this, another plane of existence where I was calm and I was in the presence of this, I don't know, I just call it a light, you know, and it was, it was like, I imagined myself like a baby being held and all my problems went away and I was just, you know, I could breathe and I could think, right. And I could feel, and I was just so in the moment and I felt amazing. And I just kind of sat there in that for a while. Right. And there was no communication. It was just like this presence of this amazing love and calmness and i just felt like at one with everything and i and i remember thinking it was like my body had been passed through a filter and all the bad stuff my addiction my worries everything was like down on this gurney in this emergency room and i just just took a rest right and then and then i started getting um nervous because i i I started thinking about what was going on and i thought i'm gonna die i'm not ready to die i don't want to die and I became more and more desperate, right? And, and you know, all my tranquility was kind of gone. And I was really kind of just kind of manic, even at this other plane. And, I, and this God, I don't know, this being, whatever, just sent me this message. And it's so, so simple. It just said, you know, give it, give it to me. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I'm going to trust this. I'm just going to give everything. If I die, then I die, right? And whatever happens. And I, and I did that. And, and, and I just filled with you know, with love. And then, you know, it's the last thing I remember. And, you know, I had an operation and spent a week in the hospital after that. And I got out and I have had zero, and I mean, zero desire for alcohol. In fact, I find it disgusting to even think about drinking it. It's like black licorice to me. I would not go near it. <laughs> and, you know, I know it sounds crazy, but I feel that whatever happened in that in two months, and I'm so grateful because I have so many friends in the program who suffer all the time and and have cravings and you know years later and I, and I I feel you know it was like my addiction to alcohol was cut out of me and uh, and I'm so I'm so grateful for that and um but but I realize it sounds it sounds kind of crazy you know because it's like a wave of god waved his hand and took this away from me and uh, and I'll never I'll always be grateful for that Tom is spiritual guru Eckhart Tolle says the key to life is to die before you die. <laughs> and it sounds like, and not necessarily like it's a flat line to die before you have to die, but 
you can reach a moment where your ego is fully dissolved and you fully accept and surrender. And it's a blissful experience. And I talk a little bit about that with my experience on plant medicine in episode 170 and actually plan on doing a follow-up in the next couple of months, just a quick snippet uh, at the end of a podcast episode, because that experience forever changed my life. And it sounds like your experience forever changed your life. And that's the goal of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is, it is not a religious program. It is an extremely spiritual program that leads people down to spiritual awakenings. Unfortunately, I think uh, only a small percentage of people really hit that spiritual awakening. But the good news is there's so many ways to do it. You don't just have to do the steps. So many ways to slowly awaken and get glimpses of an awakening. And, and before we hit the, the rapid fire on Tom, let's real quick cover uh, the stressor in your life with your 19-year-old son. He's coming up on one year clean. And so he's actually on the forefront. He's trailblazing this sobriety in this family. So he's, a, he's over a year or coming up on a year clean, and you've got seven months. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, as a matter of fact, I was just that's thinking so about, cool. you know, it's the first today, right? You know, one year ago, if, you know, he, he, it was the end of January when, you know, I got this call and he came home, Paul, and, and you know, cause he was, you know, near the end it was bad, right? He was homeless. I didn't know where he was. And I'll ever, I'll, you know, I'll never forget that day. He walked through that door and I just hugged him and, and, and my wife. And, and it was just so incredible that he came back because I, I was, I didn't know where it was going to go. And, you know, he, he got into rehab and he, he's been amazing. You know, like he is really like, I, it's hard for me. I pinch myself, honest to God. Like, it's hard for me to believe that it, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't been a year yet and, and, and how, you know, you can turn yourself around. You know, also, Paul, like how much I did not realize that you, know, you learn so much about yourself when you get sober. You do. And <laughs> and, and the, pain, the pain that he was in and some things that he was dealing with, which, you know, we talk about now. It's like, you know, we don't go to AA or meetings to get. It's like, it's, I kind of agree. With you. Like, I don't think it works. Like, I need to say things that I can't say when he's there. And, and you know, maybe at some point I'd be more comfortable with that. But, you know, you know, when we're on vacations and stuff, you know, we'll go to an AA meeting together. And, and you know, I honestly am so, it sounds weird to say, I'm so grateful that, that both of us, it, it's definitely painful, and you know, I guess in a perfect world, none of neither of us would have gone through this, but we wouldn't be the people we are today. And I'll tell you what, like he is so much stronger today than ever, and so am I, and we're stronger. And and I feel like you know, it's like you said, this stuff is so spiritual. You can build such an inner strength and know yourself so well through recovery that I mean, I, I said it before. Like I, I sometimes I feel like. Superman. I, mean, I feel like I have so much internal strength now that I didn't have ever in my entire life. And I wouldn't have any of that if I hadn't gone through this, this hell, you know? Um, so, you know, I don't know, I guess uh, I, I'm grateful for where we're at now, you know, it definitely wasn't, wasn't easy and who knows what, what the future holds, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident. Um, but I, you know, I kind of live I live in the now. Right now right? That's my that's my big thing. Uh, Tom, I you know, love you it. You can't live anywhere else. Tom, all of us who struggle with addiction, we have the ability to rebound fully on the other side. Many people who struggle with addiction and go to the depths of hell in their life rebound to become profound leaders in whatever space they are in. Uh, it is it is one of the best. I mean, it's it's, it's like in the, in the old days with the shamans, they'd just point them out to the wolves and say, hey, go out to the wild, and if you come back, great. 
And that's what we're doing with addiction. When we come back, we learn these invaluable life lessons and apply it to our lives. And Tom, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's Number go. One, Tom, what was your worst memory from drinking? I think one of my, my worst memories, Paul, was when, you know, I went on this uh, church camping trip and, and I got so drunk that I basically packed up the family and snuck away early the next morning to to avoid further embarrassment. I, and because I mean, I still see some of these people and, and, you know, maybe I'll make amends and talk to somebody about it at some point. But I, 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 that really bothers me, you know, 15 years later, I still think about it. And Tom, what was your oh shit moment indicating you can't control your drinking? I've never told anybody this, and it was about a year ago. You know, my son was still in active addiction then, and so he had been around here. We had a bad scene, and then, you know, I was drinking, and I woke up about 3 o'clock in the morning. And sometimes I like to drive to think, and I got in the car, Paul. I have a fast little Subaru thing, and I just drove for hours. And when I was – I had an uncle that taught us how to – he called it sport driving, basically controlled slides and stuff. And I found myself – I was up near Mount Baker, and – you know, I never have thought about killing myself, um, but it's pretty clear to me. I was the way I was driving and the crazy stuff I was doing. That's that's what uh, that's what was going on. I was putting it in God's hands, you know. And I had, you know, I spun out and the car stopped, and I finally came to my senses and I just bawled like a baby. And I thought, man, you know, this is irresponsible. And and uh, that was bad. That that was probably. But, you know, then I went back to more drinking. Uh, but but that was something that has always really stuck with me. That, you know, I could have killed myself yeah. that night and, or somebody else. And, Tom, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? You know, I like to keep it kind of kind of simple, Paul. I'm living in the moment right now. Like, I'm, I'm going to AA. I'm still totally into that. Connected with my son, you know. I... I try to stay present in the moment and really connect with people. That's my big thing. Like that's really helped me a lot. Like, you know, in the past, like if I see somebody doing something, you know, that I think is amazing, I let them know, you know, or I, you know, I just communicate a lot more, you know, with people that are important to me in my life and even strangers. Right. I, I really, I, I find that by connecting with people, like all kinds of amazing stuff happens. So that's, that's kind of what I'm at all about right now is just being totally in the moment. It's all about connection. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? So early on when I went to AA, well, for, for one thing, my son told me to go to AA and that, that was good. It's good advice. I, 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 I couldn't have done it without that. And then also I met this old guy in AA and, you know, cause I went to a lot of meetings in the beginning, right? Whenever I had any kind of concern at all, I was off to a meeting and this old guy pulled me aside. And, you know, I don't know how he worded it exactly. I don't remember the exact words, but he said, um, you know, you need to go at this like your life depends on it because your life does depend on it, you know? And, and, you know, he, ba- you know, he was awesome. He gave me his number. He said, you know, you call me anytime. He goes, he goes, you don't want to mess around with this. You got to go all in. And, you know, I kind of, that's my natural instinct anyway. And, and so that really resonated with me. And I'm glad, I'm glad that he gave me that advice. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? So, you know, I would say do what works for you. You know, there's a lot of people that have all kinds of decisions. Is it a disease, all this other stuff, you know, do what works for you to stay sober and to keep yourself safe, you know? And, and I'd also say, you know, you don't need to understand everything at that moment, right? Sometimes you just got to 
I don't know, they say fake it till you make it, you know, just commit yourself to doing something and give it some time and, and, and then, you know, see if it works for you. And I think educating yourself is huge too. I think that's, for me, that was a big part of like getting my subconscious mind on board, right? It's really, because there's so many, you know, our whole society is just screwed up in terms of how we think about alcohol and you need to, you need to sweep that away and mm-hmm. see it for what it really, what it really is. And Tom, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcohol gift line and you can give more than one if you want. <laughs> oh, thanks Paul. Cause you know what? I've, uh, I love these things and I do have a couple. So the one I, this is one that's like, you might be an alcoholic if you can't recall which Netflix episodes that you've already binged or planned to binge even as you are possibly rewatching them. <laughs> well, Netflix knows there's alcoholics watching them, so they have the bar that says, like, you know, the red bar, you're, you made it 22 minutes through this episode. So they're a great company, and they know what they're doing. <laughs> Love it. What's the next one? Uh, the next one is, um, I said, you know, you might be an alcoholic um, if your doctor tells you that your drinking has caused you to lose the feeling in three of your fingers, and your first thought is that you still have seven fingers left. That's rational thinking there. I, I, very I optimistic, I Tom. Yeah. <laughs> got seven left. It's I have all a good. Bunch of, I have a bunch of them. That I, I mean, I'll, I'll send them to you, Paul. Ones that I've that I've written. Uh, yeah, please do. Actually, read them. Please do. Yeah. I have Evernote. Like I think on the bus and stuff, and I just kind of something occurs to me, I type it in. I'll send them to you. Yeah, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on over seven months of sobriety. I'm so glad you can share this journey with your son. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. And, you know, uh, I just want to express my appreciation for your podcast. I mean, it, I think what you do is amazing. And, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that, that you do this. Thank well, you, thank you so for much. listening, Tom. Thank you. You might be an alcoholic if. Again, thank you, Tom, for sending the majority of these after our interview. And listeners, I would love to hear your own You Might Be an Alcoholic If lines. Email info at recoveryelevator.com. And in the subject line, just say Y-M-B-A-A-I, another acronym. Okay, you might be an alcoholic if you haven't stopped drinking since Clinton was in office. You might be an alcoholic if you've ever told someone that you love them more than drinking. Yikes. You might be an alcoholic if it takes multiple trips to move your weekly glass recycling to the curb for pickup. You might be an alcoholic if you don't give money to the homeless because you fear they will spend the money on alcohol, which is what you plan to do anyways. You might be an alcoholic if you know how long it's been since your last drink. Always. You might be an alcoholic if you conveniently store booze in your closet. You might be an alcoholic if your restaurant food bill pales in comparison to your bar tab. You might be an alcoholic if you get so drunk at the family church camping trip that you end up packing up the family and sneaking away early next morning in order to avoid further embarrassment. You might be an alcoholic if you decide where to go out for dinner based on their double martini specials. You might be an alcoholic if your favorite local martini bar, out of nowhere, institutes a new three-drink maximum policy, and you're not happy. You might be an alcoholic if you dearly love all your siblings, but cannot remember the details of your get-togethers for many years now. You might be an alcoholic if you start buying your booze at a different store because you personally know one of the new checkers. You might be an alcoholic if your first task when vacationing is to fully stock the bar in the house you rented. You might be an alcoholic if you have booze automatically shipped to your house. (laughs) I like this next one. You might be an alcoholic if you have worn out corkscrews. You might be an alcoholic if you lie to your medical professional about how much you drink. You might be an alcoholic if your definition of social drinking is that you are not drinking alone. 
You might be an alcoholic if the primary purpose of brushing your teeth is to hide the smell of alcohol. You might be an alcoholic if you put your glass of wine in the microwave in order to prevent fruit flies from getting to it while you drive to pick up your daughter from her evening dance class. You might be an alcoholic if you can no longer remember your dreams upon waking up. I wondered if I stopped dreaming entirely when I was drinking. You might be an alcoholic if you haven't seen a sunrise in years. You might be an alcoholic if you have no answer when someone asks you what you do for fun. You might be an alcoholic if you keep bottle openers and corkscrews in your suitcase toiletry bag. You might be an alcoholic if you've upgraded to first class because of the expedited drink service. You might be an alcoholic if your Christmas tree decorations involve bottles of wine. You might be an alcoholic if you email a recovery podcast host asking for advice if you have a drinking problem or not. You might be an alcoholic if you've ever lost an argument with a maple tree. You might be an alcoholic if you drink champagne for all occasions. And guys, scientists announced that they have located the gene for alcoholism. Scientists say they found it at a party, talking way too loudly. And just since you guys are loving this, I got two more quick jokes before we wrap it up. The son went to his dad and asked him, Dad, what's an alcoholic? So the dad replied, Do you see those four trees? Well, an alcoholic would see eight. The son then replied, But Dad, I only see two. Next one, They probably shouldn't send alcoholics to jail. They've spent enough time around bars. I hope you enjoyed those as much as I did. Please don't forget to bring humor and laughter into your life, no matter what stage you are at this process. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.